Well, my name is Daniel Hopsicker, and I uh, asked myself, as I waited to come on, what I could say to you that would be most useful to you. Um, and I guess I've been asked to come up here and share my experience, strength, and hope, and what happened to me. So first, before I tell you what I found out, I'll tell you who I am, so you can judge a little bit better what, I, what, I, what I'm going to tell you. Um, I was a business producer, spent 25 years living in Los Angeles, um, trying to be one of the beautiful people, which is hard to do when you're bald at the age of 25. And um, in the late 90s, I wanted to have a second show, because I had a business show that it was airing internationally on NBC. And I went out to update a silly old show that was hosted by Leonard Nimoy, aired for five years in the late 70s, called In Search Of. Extraterrestrials, pyramids on Mars, da-da-da-da. There was always a story in the middle that was pretty interesting and made you go, hmm, you know? So my associate producers sold me on featuring on the, what was going to be a half-hour pilot, uh, a story that was then called America's Most Famous Unsolved Mystery. It had been featured three, four times on that show. It's called The Train Desk. So at two 17-year-old high school seniors who were stumbling, larking, larking at midnight in August in 1987, and they stumbled onto a drug drop and were murdered. So I got down to Arkansas to shoot this little 15-minute story. Now, and the first thing I have to tell you is that most people on the, this part of the country think that those of us from California are all wacky, okay? And in some ways we are, but I can tell you, we had never heard of a drug drop before. We had never heard those two words put together. We had never heard of a place where drugs and or cash rain from the sky, literally rain from the sky regularly. But people in Arkansas have. And what I discovered is there were people down there were afraid to talk to me. Well, nobody in California is afraid to talk. They'll talk about anything. People in they people said to me, no, you don't understand. You're going to leave, and I have to stay. So I had never been in a place like that before, especially in my hometown, USA. And instead of doing a 15-minute feature on a half-hour silly pilot, TV pilot for a show nobody really needed, I did a two-hour documentary based on allegations that the CIA was trafficking cocaine through Mena, Arkansas in the 80s to fund the Contras. And imagine that. And I took this two-hour documentary back with me with pretty much conclusive proof that that was indeed the case. And because I'm from the Midwest, there's just this basic naivete, okay, about those of us born and raised in the Midwest. You just never lose it. I thought somebody was going to give me a Pulitzer Prize, you know. And I gave it to my big dog friend in Hollywood who helped found HBO. And HBO at that time was running documentaries on racy topics. Um, Spike Lee had a series of Sunday night things um, on yeah, uh, racism in the South in the 60s, you know, and I thought, well, how about drug smuggling in Arkansas in the 80s? You know, there's a topic we haven't heard too much about yet, but no. And my big dog friend told me that my show would not air. And I thanked him for that because only your friends will ever give you the truth in Los Angeles. People that don't like you just won't return your calls. So there I was sitting with a $100,000 $100, show upside down. Um, 
and nowhere to go with it. And I'm a little angry. <laughs> so I decided to write a book about the gentleman, Barry Seal, who had been most instrumental in flying drugs down to the Contras and or flying rather weapons down to the Contras and drugs back. And in fact, Barry Seal should go down in history as being the man who brought military logistics to bear on moving narcotics, which is a major industry after all. I mean, it's the number one or two industry in terms of foreign trade in the world. So if, if, every, if every drug van or drug plane out there had, you know, drug X on it, like FedEx, you know, it would be a common symbol. You'd be seeing them everywhere. And you think about it, you'd have to see them everywhere. Um, and it's an open secret, in fact. I mean, you can't, how do you hide um, from a government that can read the make your golf ball from outer space, that's our government. The biggest industry in the world today, which is the importation and sale of illegal narcotics. And the fact is you can't, you can't. It's an open secret. And what an open secret is, is something that everybody in town knows about, about one hour in, yeah. Everybody in town knows about, but, but nobody's willing to admit, okay? If only somebody had come to me and said, kid, you're getting in way over your head. Don't do this. Of course, if someone had done that, I'd have done it anyway. But now I'm saying after the fact, if only. So in a conversation, you know, I'm, I'm going to retail some anecdotes here as we go along because that's what I have to offer. In a conversation, he told me three times once, well, if they come to see you, you have to be willing to tell them what you want. He said that you have to be willing to tell them what you want. One day he calls me up and he has a friend he wants to bring in to meet me. And this is February in Newport Beach. It's a rainy season in California. We only have two seasons, dry and rainy. It's rainy season. But that's no excuse. This, my friend Dick brought this man, tall, distinguished gentleman, probably late 50s, early 60s. He was wearing a trench coat. Swear to God, he was wearing a trench coat. Well, later I found out that he had been for many years and was still at that time the station chief in Madrid, which would have meant nothing. But I knew he was somebody, right? And he wants to see my show. So I'm showing him about a half an hour of The Secret Heartbeat of America, the show I did about Arkansas and cocaine and Barry Seal. And I'm nervous. I'm thinking, because this guy's smart and has an imposing appearance, he's going to jump down my throat. And I'm sitting there tense. And when he's seen enough, he said, you can stop it. And I looked at him, and he looked at me, and this is how smart these people are. Here's what he said. He said, everybody knows this. Everybody knows the government smuggles drugs. I was just in Costa Rica. I've loaded drugs onto planes. I was just in Costa Rica. They're doing it down. Everybody knows this. What do you want? Now what I'm about to tell you is true, and a few people that know me here might, might vouch that this sounds like me. What do you want? I should have said, give me my $100,000 back. <laughs> but I'm from the Midwest. And so I said was, everybody doesn't know that the government smuggles drugs. If everybody knew the government smuggled drugs, drugs would be legal. There's two million poor schmucks in prison in this country for selling basically small amounts, which you guys are bringing in by, by the train load full. 
So, but he doesn't know. And I said, if it's no big deal, I said, put me in charge of cocaine distribution in North America next year. <laughs> and I said, I'll choose your next fucking commander in chief. I did, I did, I said that. <laughs> because that's the truth. Um, we're talking about the dark side um, of, our, of our world, of the world we live in. If you're of an age like I am, and I'm in my mid-50s, fuck, excuse my language, you have not been allowed to know the truth about any of the major public events that have occurred in our lifetime. Kennedy assassination would be first. The Vietnam War. My dad and I fought about the Vietnam War for 10 years. 10 years after the Vietnam War, if you'd asked my dad what it was for, he couldn't have told you. Nobody knew. And here we are today in Iraq. Now, why are we in Iraq? Excuse me? Why? Terrorists, but there were 15 Saudis on those planes, so why aren't we in Saudi Arabia instead? You know, why are we? Nobody knows. We've been there seven years. I don't know how long. You know, I mean, what? We'll be there a long time. And, you know, and also, I'd be happy if I could be, and I am cynical. Believe me, I'm cynical. I'm too cynical for my own good. But if it's for the oil, that doesn't make sense. They're only pumping. $10 billion worth of oil out of the ground a month, and we're spending $20 billion a month to be there. That's, that's why we're having a recession now. So if it's for the oil, and if it's not for the oil, I don't know what it's for. Okay, so once again, I'm clueless. I am not allowed to know, and we aren't allowed to know, the truth about what's going on. So that's a little about me. Let's come to 9-11 now. Um, so I did a book about this guy, Barry Seal, that, that, I uh, that I wasn't allowed to have a show air about, Barry and the Boys. And I, I've discovered some pretty amazing things in this. In fact, the picture on the front cover of the book is the only extant photograph of the CIA's super-secret assassination squad called Operation 40. And this picture was taken in a nightclub in Mexico City on January 21st, 1963. And Barry Seal, the biggest drug smuggler in American history and a lifelong CIA agent, is, is on this cover. And right there, that's Felix Rodriguez, who many of you know. And this guy right here, that's Porter Goss. <laughs> and I found the photograph, and I found it in Barry Seal's widow's safe, where she kept her jewels. And when the State Department sent down a seven-man cleanup squad to go through her files in 1995, three years before I got there, they didn't look in the safe. And so the picture was still there. It was a keepsake that he gave her. You know, it was in a frame from like a nightclub, Mexico City, you know. So, I'll tell you this little anecdote because it'll get, get me from here to there. Um, I was getting death threats while I was shooting that two hour documentary from people, I, presumed we're close to the Marcello organization, which is still down there, but it was scary. I mean, I don't know, you ever got a death threat? I had never got a death, and I was 45, you know, <laughs> well, new thing for me, death threat, and I was closing, locking windows, and looking at myself in the mirror going, what did you get into here? And that was the point at which I discovered that I had inside myself this kind of like wild hair that I wanted to know 
at some time before I shuffle off this mortal coil, I wanted, I want to have some vague idea of what the hell was going on while I was alive. And I didn't. And I realized I didn't. So, three days after 9-11, it's on the news, but quietly. We had already heard that the two pilots that took down the World Trade Center both had learned to fly in Venice, Florida. On the fourth day after 9-11, it came out that the third pilot, a third pilot, the guy allegedly at the controls of the plane crashed in western Pennsylvania, also learned to fly in Venice, Florida. And I knew there was something hinky about that. Because my parents retired in Venice, Florida in about 1981. And every year I'd fly from L.A., not every year, but almost. I was a pretty dutiful son. I'd fly to Venice, Florida to see my mom and dad and spend three, four nights. And if by the third or fourth night there I was so restless I had to go out to have a beer, there was nothing to do in that town. So why would a terrorist pilot in the last year of his life go to a town which I later discovered had the second oldest population in the entire United States? There's 220 flight schools in Florida alone. You want to spend the last year of your life with blue-haired widows or in Miami? So why weren't they in Miami? Why did they go to Venice? I knew there was something there I needed to know about. And so I drove to Venice, moved to Venice. So I get to Venice, Florida. Okay, so the story now is three of the four terrorist pilots on September 11th learned to fly in tiny Venice, Florida, which seems to me to have made Venice, Florida the biggest 9-11 crime scene that wasn't reduced to rubble. But when I got down there, I wasn't tripping over investigative reporters from the Washington Post to get to the bar. There wasn't anybody there. It's not as if the national press decided to ignore that part of the story, except for one guy at the Cincinnati Inquirer and one guy at the Seattle Post. There was nobody there. And, friends, that has been the biggest shock of my life. You could tell me that little green men sit behind George Bush in the Oval Office telling him what to do, and I would not have been as shocked as I was when I personally discovered that we don't have a free press in this country anymore. You know, if, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you're, you're all sympathetic to this. Whatever you do, you want to be the best at it you can be. If you're a mechanic, you want to, like, be a good mechanic. And I had always thought, if you were a reporter, an investigator, I mean, you want the scoop, man. You want to be Carl Woodward or Bernstein. You know, you want them to make a movie about you. And I go down to Venice, Florida, and I started interviewing people that had known the terrorists for several years, and nobody else had been to see them. And I just can't really wrap my mind around that to this day. 
You know, I, I, apparently people, apparently they select newspaper reporters for their lack of curiosity. And I, I guess a friend of mine said there, there's a test. You have to be, uh, you have to have the ability to stand there with your hair on fire while telling your audience you can't smell smoke. Thank you. You're too kind. Okay. So, I'm the only guy there, and it's tense. Okay? I want to tell you folks, I'm proud of a few things I've done in my life. But this is one of them. I sat on an active CIA covert operation that was still running in Venice, Florida, after 9-11, and I wrote about it for two years. And nobody else did that. Nobody else picked up the stories. Here's the basic story of 9-11 that we've been told. That terrorist pilots, three of the four terrorist pilots came to learn, to learn to fly at two flight schools at the tiny Venice, Florida airport, each of which had been purchased in the year before the terrorists began to arrive by two separate Dutch nationals who had nothing to do with each other. I call that the magic Dutch boy theory. Y'all remember Kennedy's? I get, I've lived in the South for five, I'm behind enemy lines in Florida for five years now, so I could say things like y'all. Y'all remember the Kennedy assassination with the magic bullet theory, right? One bullet that went through like seven bones. Well, this is the magic Dutch boy theory, because if you cannot stretch your mind around the coincidence of two separate Dutch nationals purchasing flight schools the terrorists shortly thereafter begin to train at, then there's something wrong with you. Uh, there was that old book, it was the best times, it was the worst of times. You know, um, in some ways, I am still naive enough to believe what I believed when I was a kid, which was that this is the best country on the face of the earth. And evidence of that would be that folks like you have an in, intense interest in the world around you and, you know, are not getting beaten up as you go home. Well, the flip side of that, of course, as we all know, is that our country does things around the world that, that all of us are, would be ashamed if we had to sign off on. And we have no ability to, to, to affect events on that, on that scale. So, you know, on the one hand, it's a great, I'm, I'm, I'm alive. I mean, um, in 85%, 90% of the countries on the face of the planet, someone like me would be dead by now. They do not allow dissident journalists. They don't allow people to write about things they don't want to be written about. Most places in this world. But I'm alive. Uh, but I don't, I'm, uh, and I'm alive because I have no effect. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so let's keep it that way, okay? <laughs> let's, I like selling books, but I don't want to sell too many, you know? I used to go to con once a year. I was a producer. I was never a big deal, but I made good money. So I don't mind being poor now, because I've had that a little bit, you know? I had enough of it. But um, there's no way you can make your voice heard loud enough to affect the national dialogue in any way at all, unfortunately. I found that out, because I found out some amazing things in Venice, Florida, which I'm going to tell you about now, and I'm going to start with the biggest one.
which you may or may not know, and that is this. During the same month that Muhammad Atta and his bodyguard, Marwan al-Shehi, because that's who he was, arrived to attend his flight school in Venice, Florida, the owner of the flight school's Learjet was surrounded by DEA agents with submachine guns on a runway at Orlando Executive Airport on July 22nd in the year 2000. And they found 43 pounds of heroin on board. It was the biggest heroin bust in Central Florida history. Now, the biggest heroin bust in Central New Hampshire history might be no big deal, but we're talking Florida. The Orlando Sentinel wrote that it was the biggest heroin bust in Central Florida. 40, it's known, folks, as heavyweight. Nobody comes by that much heroin by mistake. And Wally Hilliard, the man that owned the flight school attended by Muhammad Adha, his Learjet had made 39 weekly trips to Venezuela and back before it got busted. And when I looked into how it got busted, it was by mistake, which is always how these things happen, okay? Some little low-level guy got busted with an ounce and said, I'll show you where I get the drugs. And some little low-level DE agent said, cool, man, let's do it. And to tell you, the biggest thing I have to say about what I'm doing in Venice, Florida, about what real investigative reporting is about, is I'm still writing about that. I am still writing about people that were involved in that bust. The co-pilot on, well, on, on Wally Hilliard's Learjet, the man that owned Huffman Aviation, the co-pilot on that plane's name was never mentioned in any DEA affidavit or in any court transcript. His name is Michael Francis Brassington, and I was told his name wasn't mentioned because he was a DEA agent from Guyana. Well, he's from Guyana, but he wasn't a DEA agent because he's involved in a major scandal currently in Florida. His father, you want to know where this, okay, this plane, so I'm, what I'm telling you folks, where does heroin come from? Thank you, thank you in the front. Well, I mean, this is not brain surgery, is it? Muhammad Adda shows up, the flight school owner's Learjet's busted with 43 pounds of heroin, couldn't have anything to do with Muhammad Adda being there. Shit. So, you know, one overarching explanation for 9-11 and for the cover-up that, that we all agree occurred afterwards is that elements of the United States government we're engaged in a dirty business with Osama bin Laden up till September 10th, when he may or may not have double-crossed his U.S. partners. Okay? The typical deal, according to a source of my friend Sandra Hicks in New Jersey in a case that came out, the typical deal with terrorists is oil and heroin for guns and training. Well, they were getting training in Venice, Florida, and in Naples. You know, and, and there's the heroin. I don't know where the oil was, but, you know, it was a deal there, okay? And nobody's feet have been held to the fire for that, and I am so upset by that. Nobody lost their job. Nobody's in prison for allowing these terrorist fucks to be in this country. Now, I have a different opinion than may many, maybe most of you, and so I'm not going to go into it seriously, but I'm happy to talk about it. But I'd rather focus on what we agree on than what we disagree on. And 
one the one thing I, I, I want to be real positive about and I want to urge you all to think about is like becoming investigative journalists. I mean, look at the internet today. The internet was going to save us, and in a certain way, some ways, it's good. In some ways, we wouldn't all be here if we hadn't banded first somehow on the internet, okay? But look at it today, okay? It's, um, it's an okay corral filled with opiners, okay? People with opinions. And my dad always told me that we're opinions, well, I mean, it's a rude expression. Most of you know what it is. Um, everyone has one. Where is the investigative journalism? We all agree we're not getting it in our newspapers. You know, this guy I was telling you about, this old guy in Newport Beach that brought this other guy to see me, you know. I see him when I go out there. I like him. I was having coffee with him one day. He's retired. He says he's retired. And he was just musing out loud. He said, you know, I don't know when it was when newspapers stopped reporting what happens every day. And you know what? That's why we're all here. If our newspapers reported what happened every day, there would be no need for a 9-11. There would be no need for people like us. It would have been pushed through to a conclusion. And let me tell you, right now, we all agree there's no been, been no serious 9-11 investigation, but if it, those, again, those of you old enough to remember Watergate, if there was ever a Watergate-style hearing with some like modern Sam Irvin at the gavel, and the first person they called was Wallace J. Hilliard, and the first question they asked was, you retired at 65 to Florida, and a year later owned two flight schools training terrorists, plus 30 to 40 world-class jets, what did you need them for? Things would happen. And I'm not going to discuss our differences, but I'm going to say this. One of the best writers alive today is a guy named Thomas Pynchon. You probably all read something of his, Gravity's Rainbow. And he said, and this is his quote, if they can get you to ask the wrong questions, they don't have to worry about the answers. So to me, 9-11 is a murder investigation. There's 3,000 murders, sure, but it's a murder investigation. It's not some question of ontological reality and, you know, um, you know, where there, where there are mirrors on the backside of the moon, you know, and all of that crap. Because 3,000 people died. That's not right. You're not allowed to spin fantasies about something in which 3,000 people lost their lives. You're not, a, not allowed, as far as I'm concerned, you know, to like create Mormon religions or be, or, you know, Thetans and Scientologists when 3,000 people died on TV in horrible ways. Probably the first thing that Pissed, can I say pissed me off? I, I don't want to offend anyone here. I truly don't. Um, was that they got away from that. My understanding of a homicide investigation is that what the homicide investigator does is he goes out and he knocks on doors. And he interviews the next door neighbors and the relatives and the business associates of the perps or the suspected 
perps to find out who they were, to find out what they were doing. Nobody did that except me, and I'm nobody, believe me. But what I did find out, find out was amazing. The first thing I did, I, I was relying on a friend of mine's cynical dictum that the only real news you get about anything big that happens anymore comes out in the first 72 hours before they get the cover story straight. Well, I went back and I read all the clips from the first couple weeks after 9-11 from the local newspapers where people knew terrorists. People knew people that had been, that had, you know, that, that were now said to be dead who had lived next door, smoked pot, done cocaine, Okay, slept in sleeping bags, been untidy, whatever. The next door neighbors, who among you have heard interviews on TV from these people? Nobody. Why not? Because the FBI went around and told them all to keep their mouths shut. The first, the newspapers, three newspapers, two days after 9-11, printed that Muhammad Atta had an American girlfriend, had lived with a girl named Amanda Keller for a couple months at the Sandpiper Apartments across the street from Venice Airport. Boy, you know, I spent six months tracking her down. Well, first, the, 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 all, all three articles quoted local people, the next-door neighbors, the apartment managers, the postman confirming Muhammad Atta had an American girlfriend named Amanda Keller. When I finally did track her down, she wasn't eager to, be, to talk to me. She had moved to a Midwestern state to get away from any questioning at all. The only quote in the newspaper from her before she disappeared was, I can't really say anything. I'm afraid I'll get in trouble. So it took me a, a good bit of, uh, I, you know what, it would take in somebody at the Washington Post two days. It took me six months to find her. And when I found her, she confirmed everything that had been in the newspaper. She lived with Mohammed Hara for two months. They had gone to Key West together on a wild three-day weekend with Peter and Stefan and Wolfgang. Wolfgang. Those aren't German. Those aren't, those aren't Arab names, okay? From her, I, just, I found out that half a dozen of Muhammad Adda's closest associates while he was in southwest Florida weren't Arabs, but were German and Swiss. Well, that's kind of interesting, isn't it? A week after 9-11, FBI Director Robert Mueller <laughs> admitted in a press conference that the FBI knew the terrorists had been training at U.S. flight schools. But nobody asked the question. I mean, thought to ask the Why, if you knew there were terrorists training at flight schools, hadn't you done anything about it? And he never said well, I know why now. It's because they were protected. They knew they were here because they were making somebody with access to the levers of power in the United States government a lot of money. I had been visiting my folks in Venice, Florida for 30 years and never seen a cop. The first day I was in Venice, Florida after 9-11, got pulled over twice. And the second time, I said to the officers, you know, I'm an investigative journalist in town. My parents live here. I said, do you think I had a stop in and say hi to the chief. And he allowed that that might be a good idea. And I'm glad I did. Because I walked in the Venice Police Department and I spoke, I didn't speak to the chief because he sent out his public affairs lieutenant. 
And I'm chatting with this guy. And I, I said, you know, all I want to know, can you tell me, all I want to know is, does Rudy Deckers have any local priors? Any local arrests? Oh, and this guy shot me the most pained look. You know, cops are simple people, okay? The world is black and white. I mean, they're simple people. God bless them. You know, I mean, and, and you know, f- f- the good and bad, you know? Um, but a pained look. And he said, you know, I'd love to tell you about Rudy Decker's priors. But the day after 9-11, the FBI came and loaded two rider trucks right out there on the driveway, and they pointed outside, and took all of our files. Didn't copy their files, took their files on 9-11. Anything to do with 9-11. But that was a story I was told by a local cop. Later, after it was... See, I was there early enough for the stuff I was turning up to have made a difference. If it had come out three months after 9-11 that the owner of the flight school was running heroin into this country in massive amounts, things might be different today. JFK Jr. founded George Magazine. They held a press conference. And a reporter asked him if he was planning to use the magazine to investigate the murder of his father. And he said no. And, and what he said is really poignant. I've been thinking about it ever since. He said no. He said he wasn't. He said too much time had passed. He said time is the great enemy of the truth. Sadly. So... What was going on in Venice, Florida? What was going on? What is 9-11 about? I don't know the whole story. I do know part of the story. I do know that elements of the United States government were trading, were, were doing dirty business with presumably Osama bin Laden because heroin comes from Afghanistan. I do know that any prosecuting attorney worth his salt would have made the connection between the arrival of Muhammad Atta from Afghanistan. Rudy Deckers did say that Muhammad Atta was from Afghanistan and the 43 pounds of heroin found on his plane. Michael Francis Brassington, who was the co-pilot on Wally Hilliard's plane that got busted by mistake, and whose name didn't appear anywhere, is the son of a special advisor to the president of Guyana for privatization. And five years ago, Michael Francis Preston's father cut a deal, a billion-dollar bauxite deal, with the biggest Russian mobster alive. You know, I didn't want to investigate the Russian mob. You know, but there is one person out there who I don't even know who came at this from someplace I didn't come from, who reached the same conclusions. And her name is Sybil Edmonds. And she said that the State Department has been covering up an international network trafficking in drugs 
that was associated somehow with 9-11. And that's what I saw. That's what I found. Completely from another angle. The Russians, by the way, because I'm just moving around, it's anecdotal now, um, had what they called the aluminum wars in the 1990s. Aluminum apparently is a strategic mineral in which Russia controls most of the world's supply. And Russian mobsters fought three separate wars for control of that particular industry. And the guy that ended up owning it is the guy that cut a deal with the father of the co-pilot on the plane with Wally Hilliard's 43 pounds of heroin. Oleg D. He's 37 years old today and he's worth $28 billion. Um, 9-11 and transnational organized crime is a, a fertile topic for somebody. Because this is the big dirty secret that we're not allowed to know. Um, there was a point at which I realized that unless something happened to change things, it was going to be a long time. See, there's this fertile crescent of states that are affected by the drug trade in the southeast from Florida around to Texas. Because that's where the drugs come in. And they've been utterly corrupted by it, as who could not be, as it's done everywhere else in the world. What I have to offer you folks is in the form of a question I asked my friend the spook in Newport Beach one day. I said, how come it's so easy for me to like figure this out? It's right in incorporation papers. I'm a business journalist. I mean, that's what I used to do, sift through stuff like that. How come it's so easy to spot? And he said, deflating my ego, um, he said, because they don't even bother to hide it. Well, if you control the press, you don't have to bother to hide it. But if it's there and I can find it, you can too. Because I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, despite what I might think. You know, I, I half seriously think what we need um, is for a lot of social activists to become investigative journalists. Our government, which is just so powerful around the world that, that you know, we can't imagine, does things every day we're not allowed to know about. And that's the trade-off. Apparently, the deal we have with our government is they'll leave us alone if we leave them alone. And, you know, in a lot of ways, it's not such a bad deal. In a lot of countries, people would be happy to take that deal. And it's only when you see people hanging out of windows that it becomes unacceptable. 